0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking geopolitics. After decades of globalization, we are now firmly in a period of deglobalization and decoupling. Why is that, and what does that mean for the commodities sector? As the world develops into different blocks, how will commodities continue to flow? How involved will governments get in that trade? What's the consequences of sanctions today, and how are they reshaping global trade of the future? Many of the world's leading commodity participants today developed in a long sustained period of globalized free trade. Now, They're going to have to reorientate themselves towards a more uncertain, a more unstable and certainly a less connected world. Our guest today is Jeremy Shapiro. Jeremy was an analyst at the RAND Corporation. He was research director of the Center for the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and worked for the State Department, where he advised on U.S. policy in North Africa and the Levant. He was also senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for the European and Eurasian Affairs, Philip Gordon, Jeremy is now the Research Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review or comments on the platform you're listening on. It really supports the show, and I hope you enjoy this fascinating episode. Well, Jeremy,
1: welcome to the show. Thanks for having me
0: so it's a it 's a lot to cover in forty five minutes essentially trying to i guess we we as a as a show have been talking a lot about volatility, and obviously a lot of that in the in the global energy and commodities sector has been driven by macro events at the geopolitical level uh, which it you know, it always has to some extent but it's particularly volatile at the moment and there's a lot of uncertainty in the space so we 're trying to give some context to that and some milestones to look for going forwards. Perhaps let's start with you. Can you just give us a quick intro into who you are to help set us up to have this conversation?
1: Sure, I can try. I guess the the sort of key question is why why you should believe anything that I say, which is a little bit of a difficult one to answer, but I am the research director at the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank which is based in seven different European cities and we're trying to understand what the emerging geopolitical competition means for Europe and for uh, European foreign policy, and also for the sort of questions for, about how the, the globalization is proceeding. And that has obvious impacts on things like uh, commodities markets and markets in general. Before the European Council on Foreign Relations, I was uh, mostly at Brookings, which is a think tank in Washington, doing something similar. And I also spent four years uh, during the Obama administration in the State Department, in the policy planning staff, and in the Bureau of European Affairs.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, thanks. Well, well, thank you for that. And it does set us up nicely to have this conversation. So before we talk about the state today, is it we, we sort of look back at the, I guess, the fall of the Berlin Wall through to really, I mean, you could easily argue COVID was a period of marching globalization, or at least the, let's say the advent of the Trump administration, of marching globalization and ever more efficient global supply chains, you know, a vibrant China-US trade. Are we sort of mischaracterizing the period before today's period as sort of a golden age of stable global trade? I mean, can you just help us sort of understand the the recent historical context
1: of the to today? I don't know exactly that we're mischaracterizing it. I mean, it was a period of extraordinary and increasing globalization. We've had such periods in the past, and I would say they contain, they generally contain the seeds of their own destruction. And so, generally speaking, they do create, let's say, greater interdependencies, greater conflict, and they tend to have a lot of instability built into them that gets reflected back into domestic politics. So I would date the sort of at least the beginning of the end of that period to the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, which I think is the sort of cause of the populist movement. But it's a sort of typical expression of the fact that after we globalize, we tend to lose track of what the impact of that globalization is on specific domestic political communities. They tend to react very negatively and create a sort of more populist, more protectionist, more isolationist politics. This is almost a cycle in world affairs, and we're in we're into another part of that cycle right now. Is
0: there any sort of divining what's underneath that rise of populism? Is it that actually the globalized trade, then the global financial crisis? We've spoken on this show about the the then artificially low interest rates. You know, did the, how did that? contribute to populism and then and was this a worldwide phenomenon and can you sort of start tracing that forwards to obviously when we get the trump administration we get marine Le Pen, we get boris johnson you know in in there's lots of sort of various bolsonaro in brazil there's lots of various sort of artifacts of populism coming through
1: yeah i mean i don't know if it's a global phenomenon but it's certainly a phenomenon throughout the the developed west and i think you know it's a little bit there's sort of multiple causes, but if you think about what globalization did over the course of the 90s and the 2000s, is that it was extraordinarily successful at creating wealth. And enormous numbers of people, uh, particularly in the developed world, came out of poverty in China and India, literally hundreds of millions of people. And it, generally speaking, created wealth all throughout the world. But it did so very, very unevenly. And in fact, it immiserated large sections of of the inside of particular countries and in the developed West particularly the the section of the population that suffered the most was the the, what what we tend to refer to as the lower middle class people who worked in industrial jobs and in manufacturing whose jobs were very often through the very efficient process of globalization shifted to um, uh, locales to geographies to countries that, um, had lower costs of labor. And so that meant that even as countries were getting wealthier, the distribution of income was getting in, in these countries was getting a lot worse and specific, uh, segments of the population was getting, were getting poorer, especially relatively poor. And I think that that, uh, over time had an impact on the politics. And that's the sort, and it is this sort of lower middle class rebellion against what, uh, the upper class views as a very successful globalization policy. Um, And which in the macro statistics really is, that has changed the politics in a lot of the world and has turned a lot of uh, the politics of the West, uh, represented by Donald Trump, but there's a sort of an echo of that in pretty much every developed country against globalization. China has played a really particular role in this because China, in addition to being a sort of ideological opponent of democracy in the West, has been able to be the greatest beneficiary of the globalization of the last 20 years and has been the source of, uh, has been the destination for a lot of world manufacturing capability and therefore, at least in people's mind, the loss of jobs in the West and, uh, and the loss of ability to have export surpluses and that kind of thing. And so it has a lot of the frustration has focused on China and on the way that China manipulates the system for its advantage, not, not playing fair, the WTO, and that kind of thing, and stealing intellectual property. So I think that even as globalization has been an economically very successful policy, its distributional effects and its geopolitical effects have upset the system. And again, this is a sort of typical process.
0: Yeah. Okay, so in the context of energy and commodities, that it has been a, up until, you know, in some argument, COVID, a very, very efficient supply chain. And I realise there's sort of this, there's a melding of events, and it's easy to think about the world pre-COVID and post-COVID. Can we sort of start with, I guess, the starts of, you know, arguably deglobalization with the Trump administration? Uh,
1: sure. I mean, I think that, One of the things that characterized this particular wave of globalization and made it somewhat unique was the creation of these highly efficient, highly integrated global supply chains. And you didn't see quite that kind of thing in previous globalizations. And I think the reason reason was obviously the technology didn't exist to do it. And so what happened through market forces is that supply chains were basically able to sort of locate themselves in a sort of just-in-time fashion in the areas that made the most sense economically, with little reference to the geopolitics or the political economy issues about distribution of wealth that I talked about. As I said, I think the global financial crisis was the sort of onset of the politics against this, but COVID was very, very significant. And I would argue less in the sense that it disrupted anything, then it revealed just how fragile these things were and just how effectively they could be used for geopolitical purposes. So suddenly when you wake up one day and you realize that you have this sort of life-threatening disease and all of the protective medical equipment is, is manufactured in China and the Chinese government is willing and able to both hoard that and to use it for geopolitical purposes by doling it out to countries that are willing to give something to it in return, you sort of realize the incredible vulnerability that comes through dependencies that are in these supply chains that were created without anyone ever really thinking about those dependencies. And so in the context of the increasing U.S.-Chinese rivalry, people started to think, geez, we've created these supply chains. COVID revealed the kinds of ways in which they can be manipulated and leveraged. We've got to think about insulating ourselves from those effects. And that means not necessarily full deglobalization or full decoupling, but it does mean looking at all of the critical strategic supply chains and thinking about ways that we can insulate them from disruption, think about ways that we can avoid asymmetric dependencies, and think about ways that we can hedge against people's efforts to use them as leverage for geopolitical outcomes
0: at the same time we sort of had the other drumbeat of geopolitical concern is is climate change i feel that was accelerated by COVID. not least i think people sort of realize how their environments changed when people just stopped driving for a for a month yeah that but, was nice. that, that all, it was nice it also revealed you know the fact you know it, it shone a light which is now very much front and center in in european politics in the senate as in the u.s the, the, a lot of these critical metals that sit behind and underneath an energy transition also are subject to the same vulnerabilities and political control that w- w- was going on with, with masks and so forth, right? I mean, it's that, that has revealed, as you say, many of these supply chains being now vulnerable from, uh, to whatever sort of trade injunctions there might be.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. The, the supply chain. Let's say that has always had a lot of geopolitical attention going back to the 1973 oil embargo is the fossil fuel supply chain. And so this thinking about dependencies and leveraging, leveraging choke points in the, in the supply chain has been very much part of the fossil fuel conversation, oil and natural gas for 50 years. And the reason for that is kind of obvious. In the first, in the first place, it's, it's always been quite concentrated. It's supply. But in the second place, and maybe more importantly, it is so central to everything that a modern economy does, the fossil fuel, that you kind of can't live without it for 10 minutes. And so it is, it is, it has always been the most geopolitical of supply chains. When greater attention started to be paid to other kinds of supply chains in the same context of, of a move toward an energy transition, people sort of started to understand that even as we shift away from depo- from dependence on fossil fuels and relieve ourselves a bit at least of the dependencies of that supply chain we are actually possibly reinventing the dependencies of of an, of our energy system in green supply chains because a lot of the critical resources i probably don't need to tell your your listeners are concentrated in specific parts of the world in africa and in china and and even more importantly, a lot of the manufacturing capabilities for processing those minerals or turning them into solar panels or whatever, or batteries are also concentrated in China. And so there was this, re- there has grown up this real fear in the last, yes. I would say, it's pretty new in the last four or five years, that we are creating a, a supply chain dependency for the new energy system that might even be worse than the old one, because instead of being dependent on as difficult as it was was to be dependent on countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia for fossil fuels, it might even be worse to be dependent on China for green energy. Yeah, well, let's move to, I guess, the, the state today. And zooming in, I guess,
0: particularly on China, you know, its relationship with the West. There's a there's sort of a lot at the moment in the press about the the Belt and Road policy and how, you know, various African nations, South American nations are getting even more in debt as a lot of the Chinese infrastructure is, some of it's not working, some of it's crumbling already, a lot of maintenance needed, a lot of that didn't happen during COVID. Is Belt and Road, was, I mean, this was a very deliberate policy by by China to secure these critical resources and leverage in the world stealing a march on the on the us i mean can you just sort of help us understand belt and road and how that is now playing into sort of a us and a european foreign
1: policy when geopolitical competition increases when globalization starts reversing itself and there is a bit of a decoupling what the great powers tend to do is to sort of try to Lock up competing economic blocks. And you saw this really very clearly in the 1930s in the last big period of deglobalization where, you know, first a sort of US block formed or in the Western hemisphere, there was a sterling block centered around the UK, uh, a block centered around Russia in the middle of Eurasia. And there was a real effort to, uh, a, a German one. Um, there was a real effort to, for, among each of these great powers to sort of secure markets and resources and lock them in so that the others couldn't get them. And this is kind of, it's sort of, it's always important to understand that the opposite of globalization is not really isolation. It is blockitization, if that's a word, it is a bunch of, sort I think of you meaning. just coined it. We'll, uh, we'll yeah. use that one. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, you can have it without copyright. So, The Belt and Road really fits very clearly into that paradigm. As the Chinese start to understand that deglobalization is happening and that there's going to be greater attention to uh, dependencies in supply chains and that there's a greater risk that dependencies will be used against them and that they will use them against others, they look to do what every great power always does, which is to lock up To use their capacity of their, their money and their geopolitical power to lock up supplies of critical resources, which definitely includes energy, but nowadays includes various critical minerals and to also lock up markets to be able to export to, which is, you know, a sort of, in some ways, a sort of similar process because you can do both at the same time. So that's what, to me, that's what the Belt and Road is really about. The Chinese are sort of saying to themselves, We have all of this excess capital because we've had so many export surpluses. And what we need to use this export capital to do is to create a China center block. And the way that we can do that is by creating a variety of economic links with countries that are, let's say, a little bit on the periphery, not already locked into the U.S. system. And we can lock them in through through loans, through infrastructure, through increasing trade interaction. And I think that, by and large, they've been very successful at that. You know, it varies from country to country. Each country has its own story of its bilateral relationship with China. So it's important not to look at this in a too formalistic way. But if you sort of were to look at the statistics about how dependent countries in the global south are on China now versus 10 years ago, along virtually any measure, you could come up with debt, trade, investment, and also sort of trade and commodities, and uh, minerals and uh, fossil fuels, you'd find that they're all that a huge number of them have become dramatically more dependent on China, and the Belt and Road has been, you know, a key area in which that has happened, although not certainly not the only one.
0: So, blocketization, I'm going to use that. Are we seeing a similar and equal reaction from the U.S. and and Europe now? trying to secure their own spheres of
1: influence? Um, They would deny that. They would say that they are trying to protect globalization and protect the rules of globalization. But I think, yeah, we are seeing a similar effort. I don't think we're seeing, let's say, individual efforts from the U.S. and Europe. I think we're really seeing the U.S. trying to do this and trying to lock Europe into its block with a fair amount of success and then somewhat less success in other parts of the world. You know, the places where it's having success and locking people into its block are, um, places that are geopolitically afraid of China. So, you know, so that, that basically includes a lot of the East Asian allies to a degree. Taiwan, Philippines, Japan. Yeah. Those are the, those are the countries where it's doing the best with Europe is second because it has such sort of ideological opposition to China and is so ideologically close to the U.S and uh, so already linked into the system. But in other places like Africa and Latin America, this is a much harder sell for the U.S. And they, they haven't been able, in part because of the nature of the way that the U.S. allocates capital, but also in part because they haven't been generating the kind of surpluses that China has, they haven't been able to deploy the same amount of uh, resources to this problem as the Chinese have. And so they have definitely fallen behind in the global south. It's just that if you think about it, the real prizes in this, I mean, the global south is important and growing in importance. But if you look at the sort of allocation of the world economy and you combine the European allies and the East Asian allies and then sort of throw in India for good measure just because even though they're not a U.S. ally, they really are quite nervous about China – you see that actually the United States has really locked up quite a bit uh, of the capacity by combining both its sort of economic weight and the the ideological competition with China. And so this is a reasonably fair fight at the moment, even though it feels like China is making inroads in the places, making greater inroads in the places that are contested.
0: Just a quick question there. So, you know, in the the manner that the U.S. deploys capital and that it doesn't have as much, you know, reserves, surpluses to deploy obviously the us uh, you're alluding to there primarily does this via private companies right it is not a state actor to such a level that say china is in terms of backstopping investments around the world just to understand that.
1: yeah that is what i mean and even to the extent that the chinese actors are private actors which very often they are in that has a kind of different meaning in china than it does in the west And I think that the Chinese government is actually able to better coordinate and use private actors and even private money for these types of purposes, Uh, you know, within limits still, but much more able to do so than the U.S. is.
0: We're we're leaving the Russian invasion of Ukraine out for a minute because that's got a a catalyzing effect and got sort of the acute impacts and sanctions, which we're going to come on to. In this kind of blockatization world... At the moment, there seems to be two very sort of relevant things going on. One is obviously the role of the Middle East. And China's just brokered this peace negotiate deal, apparently, between Iran and Saudi. You've got OPEC starting to, I think, as Halima Croft mentioned at the FT, you know, starting to perhaps not take the US administration's call. We've just seen this cut. That seems to be a key swing vote, if you'd like. What is your take on what's going on there? Is that actually a, a, a reorientating, a real structural shift looking eastward to China as its biggest buyer, or are they just perhaps moving more to the fence and a little bit more out of the US camp?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I should have been maybe really a little bit more precise in my previous answer. There is this, there, as globalization is breaking down, there is this blockadization. There are quite a few countries in the sort of middle rank in the rank right below the U S and China that are resisting this blockitization. or to be more precise, what they're doing is saying, I don't want to be in either the U S or the China block. I want to be in my own block. <laughs> so it's not just the U S and China playing this game. It's just that they're the big guys on the block. And so countries, there's a few countries like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, like India, maybe Brazil, who are sort of thinking, you know what, I don't want to choose between the U.S. and China. I don't want to enter into either of their blocks because they're both horrible in their own ways. I want to, in the first instance, try to create a block myself and in the second instance, use their the competition that the U.S. and China have to play them off against each other and to maintain my independence. India is having difficulty with this because they have so many geopolitical problems with, with China, but... A lot of the other countries that I mentioned, particularly Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Brazil, are really working quite hard at this and have had a, a fair amount of success. And so these are countries that are sort of powerful and big enough to h- at least hope that they can have their own block and at least hope that they can resist joining either the U.S. or the China block. And I think that what you're seeing in, for example, the Saudi-Iran deal that was uh, brokered in in China, um, you know, it's not so much that the Chinese are moving in on, on a U.S. area, because after all, it's not really a privilege to be able to negotiate peace in the Middle East. It's kind of a pain in the took. <laughs> but it, what they, what, what's really happening there, it seems to me, is it's more Saudi Arabia and, and Iran asserting their independence from everybody. Um, and really saying, and it's an, it's a deal that fundamentally came from them with the help of regional actors like Iraq and Oman and Qatar, but that they went to China to conclude because they wanted to say to the United States, you know, we don't need you for this anymore. And, you know, they, that doesn't mean, I think, that they are trading China for the United States because they don't want anybody to fill that role anymore. And they would be just as wary, perhaps more wary, of China becoming a new U.S. in the region. And I don't frankly think China really wants that either. So I think that the better way to see this is not as a shift from west to east, but a fragmentation. Mm. uh, A fragmentation into more than two blocks and an effort of the smaller blocks to maintain their independence and to not be too tied to either of the two big blocks.
0: Yeah. And probably actually an important stabilizing or sort of mitigating, you know, having just two big blocks that might go to war quite easily, having these independent actors is probably a very good thing. OK, so we're going to move on to global trade, but I guess we've got to sort of tackle Russia's invasion of Ukraine because that's then has the, the consequential impact and sanctions and so forth. Can you just give us your, your take on, on, on sort of the why? I think we all know what's going on and... but. This has been variously described sometimes by me as sort of the, you know, the first war of the energy transition. This is, you know, a, a worry about resources, et cetera, a worry about diminishing role in, in, in the world. I mean, is there any sense that we can sort of divine in a geopolitical context why Putin thought this was a, a good play?
1: That's an interesting point. I, I guess I haven't really thought about the Russia, the Russia-Ukraine war it's so much in the context of deglobalization. It is true, interestingly, that when the, when the Europeans essentially said to, well, the world, but Russia included, we're going to get off fossil fuels in the next 20 or 30 years. They sort of put a clock on Russia's ability to exercise power in its neighborhood. Because if Russia is a, a power, and it very much is, as I think, I'm trying to remember who said this, but I think it was John McCain who said that, you know, Russia is basically a gas station with an army. <laughs> John McCain. Yeah, that could be that could be an incorrect reference, but uh, but but at least someone said it, and it wasn't me. But anyway, the point is that Russia was going to lose its European market anyway. Europe had had told them that it was going to, and it was probably going to be suffering as the world moved moved into green energy, a pretty dramatic loss in its capacity to generate excess resources. You know, over the very long term, this was obviously going to take decades. But one of the things clearly that had been holding Russia back was that it, you know, it really needed these European gas markets and oil markets. And it, it really wanted to make sure that Europeans understood that it was a reliable supplier. Um, and since it started supplying European gas in 1982 up until 2022, up until the start of this war, it had, it had never really reneged on any contracts. Um, and had never really used the, the supposed power it had of the oil and gas weapon against an EU state. Obviously it has since 2022, but one might make the argument that the reason it was, it was willing to do so was because it was going to lose that capacity anyway, um, over the next couple of decades. I'm not sure that the Russians actually thought that way. I haven't heard them talk about it, but it is intriguing how their methods changed once they sort of started to believe the rhetoric that, um, That the world was going to have an energy transition.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we learned just recently that, you know, Putin himself has been incredibly isolated during COVID and and still has incredible sort of quarantine restrictions around him and and so on. So it's hard to divine any thinking there. And obviously the result is they've kind of ended up very firmly in China's block, as we'll, I guess we'll talk about. But okay, but one of the things that immediately happened was obviously sanctions. And there's a couple of really interesting things I want to dig in here that's relevant to the global trading of commodities. One is obviously, well, let's start with the first, which is, you know, sanctions are, you know, there's sort of this weaponization of trade through sanctions. The U.S. is the prime mover. It uses the flow of dollars to create these sanctions. But sanctions are quite an imperfect tool and often have a, a series of unintended consequences and weakening of the sanctioner, don't they? I mean, can you just sort of give us some sense of kind of the, of the, the, the broader take
1: on sanctions? I think that sanctions are, um, let's say, both a cause and a consequence of the deglobalization that we've been talking about. If you think about it, sanctions become possible. Or are increasingly possible because of globalization. The more dependent that countries are on each other, the more effective that sanctions, at least conceivably, could be. So that meant that, sort of, starting in you know the early mid two thousands, um, the U.S. started to understand that the level of financial globalization that had happened meant that they had increasingly effective uh, sanction tools mostly focused around financial sanctions and that that uh, used the globalized financial system and the reserve role of the dollar at, and its it sort of central place in that system to be able to create sanctions, which were, you know, phenomenally powerful. Um, and they've been using these uh, since about, yeah, 2005 or so, um, increasingly. And they have been on a certain level effective in the sense that they... They really do isolate countries. They haven't been very effective at bringing about political change, but they do impose a tremendous amount of costs. But they've also, their their use and their increasing use has also signaled basically every country in the world about the risks of existing in a global financial system, which has, which gives so much leverage to the United States. And so it started to push countries led by China and Russia to try to move away from the role of the dollar and try to move away from the dependence on the international financial system that's underpinned by the US dollar. And they hadn't made enough progress by the time Russia had not made enough progress by the time the 2022 war started to be able to be totally insulated from these things. But if they had tried to do this in, you know, 2010, it would have been a lot harder uh, for them. They had actually, they had actually done some things that made it manageable. So I think that Sanctions have become—they've become the tool of choice because you don't have to go to war, obviously, for them. But they are a wasting asset, and they contain the, the seeds of their own uh, destruction. Because as countries see them work, they take, you know, often very expensive measures to become less vulnerable to them, and that is an important driving mechanism—not the only one, as I mentioned—but an important driving mechanism of the deglobalization and the blockization that we're seeing.
0: The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector, with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It would have a dramatic impact on the US itself, let alone global trade, if the dollar lost its reserve status. And I know the demise of the dollar has been predicted every day since Bretton Woods. But is that, you know, it's, it's just interesting, isn't it? It's a wasting asset and would accelerate friend and foe alike to realize there's an inherent vulnerability that they face by having the dollar as a reserve asset, if it is going to be used as such. You've worked at the policy level. Is that understood, the risk of using sanctions? Because they they seem to, as you say, they're the go-to tool, and the cascading outcome of of sanctioning Russia, I'm not sort of arguing the moral reason behind that, but is there a recognition that these are a pretty delicate tool to use and do have an economic consequence for the, the role of the dollar?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a recognition of that. It, I would say that it's just, you know, one of the sort of first rules of governance is that, uh, at least in a democracy, is that you sort of never sacrifice the short term for the long term, particularly because the long term is so uncertain. So people have these debates in exactly these terms within the U.S. government. They, they definitely understand that eventually they will lose this tool, particularly if they use it so much. But in the moment, when they're confronted with something as short-term and egregious as the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the, the tool that they have at hand that can make a difference right now is uh, the sanctions. Mm. They're extremely beneficial for, in the first instance, just demonstrating action and in the second instance, being able to say that uh, you're taking measures that are really hurting people uh, without having to, you know, shoot off weapons or send soldiers. I can't tell you what a sort of panacea that feels like in a government which is struggling for options and really wants to avoid this sort of twin problems of, you know, appeasement in World War Three, sanctions really offer a a kind of happy medium. And so when somebody stands up in the back of the room and says, well, geez, if we do this in 10 years, we probably will lose the capability. Everybody says, okay, well, maybe, but we'll deal with that then. Right now, we have a bigger problem. Different administration then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Different (laughs) administration, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully, the Republicans will be president at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: So, so, one of the things about sanctions are that obviously they in some ways they push the burden of decision making of is this trade possible down to these private corporations right the the yeah. idea that ba- you know
1: banks often yeah
0: yeah the banks essentially then take on that that and they 've obviously built up big teams to be able to deal with this really since those first sanctions you know tying back to Iran wherever it might have been but that also brings in this world of kind of there is there is the, a lot of uncertainty driven there as well. And, and this idea of self-sanctioning, hey, look, we, we think this is OK, but there's a, you know, a 5% probability that it could be deemed as wrong. And suddenly we've got an existential fine slapped on us. It hasn't a real sort of ossification of trade impact as well, even at the margins.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. And again, this is something that's understood fairly well in the U.S. government. Um, I think in the first instance, it's seen a bit as an advantage that these things are implemented by private actors. But it also means that as a tool, sanctions are very imprecise. They are not, they are very, very difficult to target well and to calibrate. Really been no success at being able to do this for exactly the reason that you point out. I had a friend in the U.S. Treasury who used to call—he he was he was Jewish, and so he, he used, to, used a Jewish analogy for this, which is uh, ring-fencing the Torah. Uh, Orthodox Jews have this idea that there are all these commandments in the Torah. It's hard to tell exactly what God meant. So put a hedge around it, yeah. So, right? so you put a big hedge around it, and you all of the gray area is fenced off. You don't do anything that's in the gray area, because then you're certain— <laughs> that you will be obeying the rules of God. And so it's very clear that companies and banks in the West are ring-fencing the Torah when it comes to sanctions. They are making sure, they are over-complying in order to make sure that they have understood the rules because the rules tend to be very vague, very difficult to interpret. And very often it's just easier to over-comply than to risk, because because generally you're talking about small markets, than to risk the disaster of, a, of um, a compliance action from the U.S. Treasury. This has another impact, too, which I think is really important. It means that it's very difficult to relieve sanctions because essentially what happens when the government decides, okay, the Russians have, let's say, withdrawn from Ukraine or parts of Ukraine, in return, we're going to relieve some of the sanctions on them. And the, the banks will look at this and say, well, geez, you know, they're probably going to come back or... Or, we or you, or you exactly reshape what's...
0: the trade underneath, right? So actually, yeah, yeah, we could do that, but there's naturally, you know, all of that grain storage, all of those shipping, thats it's gone. So it's almost irrelevant
1: yeah. right now. There, there was a, a really good example of this following the um, U.S.-Iran deal in 2015, when U.S.-Iran nuclear deal, which promised a, a degree of sanctions relief to Iran for promises about limiting its nuclear program and what happened is they the US government relieved the sanctions in the sense that it changed the it changed the rules as it said it would and no money moved toward Iran just basically none it, and then the US Secretary of State had to sort of uh, embark on a global tour to try to convince banks to go back into Iran which was a bit absurd uh, and he and he wasn't he wasn't successful because the banks' view was that this was a temporary lull or maybe it wasn't but they didn't really want to risk it And they had just spent a lot of money getting out of Iran. Why would they go back in and then have to come back out uh, a couple years later? And, and look, lo and behold, they were right. Might've been a little bit self-fulfilling, but the Trump administration came in, undid the Iran deal. If they had gone back into Iran, they could have faced enforcement actions or at the, at the, in the best case, they would have had to undo what they had done two years before at great cost. So, I think that it means that we often talk about sanctions as if they can be targeted and as if they can be calibrated and they can be used for in a negotiation to say, well, if you do this, we'll relieve that sanction. If you do that, we'll relieve this other sanction. But it doesn't really work that way. In fact, um, sanctions are a very blunt instrument, a lot easier to apply than to get rid of. And so what their overall effect is to sort of increase the decoupling and the deglobalization and the formation of these blocks. Because once you create a broad sanction like we've done with Russia, it's going to be generations before they can ever come back.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of comments when you and I met a couple of weeks back the time at the conference was talking about, um, you know, and then you're pushing a lot of this trade to the dark Dark trade, right? So suddenly you've got these brand new companies that have you know, no accountability, no transparency, certainly very little caring about the environment. I would argue. The other sort of, sort of, um, I guess, more philosophical level is that a lot of these trading houses, these global trading houses, you you sat on the stage with their leaders. Have essentially grown and formed in a world where the spice must flow right the it, it's they are they they sort of their genesis was out of is that a, uh, is that a
1: reference to dune it is it is uh, you know,
0: Fantastic. I'm allowed, I'm allowed to throw one or two in but the yeah. you know they, the a lot of their genesis was in the sort of the seventies when they were essentially sort of getting around Iran at the time you know oil embargoes then and you know we can argue that but anyway they sort of were solving problems in time space and and geopolitical ructions and then they've grown to these huge you know and this is this applies to producers this applies to the traders into these global behemoths that sort have of essentially they have built a global infrastructure and network to be very efficient at moving commodities around in some part they're still very much needed by china and the us and the other blocks because we can't you know those walls can't be firm the trade has to happen because commodities and industry are unevenly distributed is there a recognition that these you know i mean i know the biden administration has not really touched oil but there there are these critical supply resources commodities that need to move around the world are they for the most part kind of you know let's just focus on superconduct you know on semiconductors yeah, I know this is a long winded question. I'm trying to ask sort of are they in a very tenuous situation now, or they can can they be confident that come what may, the blocks are gonna to need to trade?
1: I don't think they should be confident. I mean obviously the blocks will need to trade, but I don't think that the leaders of any of these blocks, the political leaders, are going to really tolerate the kind of sort of multinational Trading house that only paid obeisance to efficiency anymore, or let's say decreasingly. And I think that they're demanding of all of these big companies, uh, all of these big nas- multinationals that they sort of renationalize their mindset and that they start to understand not just that they're moving oil from place to place. They need to understand what oil they're moving and where they're moving it to um, and what and how that fits into the geopolitical game between the US and China or between other blocks. I just don't think it's really I think what we're seeing is a real repoliticization of the economic sphere and that the politicization will win in the sense that the economic logic was that persisted and allowed the growth of these multinational firms in the in the previous 30 years or so was always embedded in a political construct which allowed them to exist. And which was committed to the ideology of globalization. Once that ideology is, is gone and once there is a renationalization of geopolitics, which I think we're definitely seeing that will slowly, but surely with indifferent to different in at different paces in different markets with different commodities. Absolutely. But that will nonetheless tell in every industry. And so I think if I were any big global company, trading, really anything. I would be increasingly thinking that I needed to understand the geopolitics, that I needed to understand who I am, where I belong, who is my, what political system am I embedded in, because you can't be embedded in all of them anymore. And therefore, you have to, there has to be some authorities that you listen to more than others, And I think that that is obviously a very difficult transition for a lot of companies, but we're seeing them make it. We're seeing it's already starting, right? It's, uh, you know, it's first in the sort of strategic technology industries. So the commodity industries are a little bit less touched by it, but I think we're already seeing that there are going to be, that there are going to be political efforts to lock up specific commodities and the companies are going to be caught up in those political efforts
0: how how does that actually look how does that transform into a an org chart say i you know if you're google do you have far more government relations executives you've got to plug yourself into the state department you've got to plug yourself into the foreign office or whoever it might be I mean, how, how do you? Is it they just come after? They, your your phone starts ringing, and they say, "Hey, look, you know, we we need someone who just has worked in all these environments and can tell us what's going on and
1: who to talk to." To I mean, a degree, yes, but I think that particularly in the West, this doesn't this doesn't really operate through a sort of you know phone call from the White House that tells Google what to do. Um, what it what it the way that it works is that, and you can see this if you go to Washington. All of the tech firms have have got big global public policy organizations now, which they just didn't have even five years ago. And uh, they, to a degree, of course, they're trying to influence public policy, to a large degree, they're trying to influence public policy. But they're also trying to understand it. And they're also trying to make sure that they don't run afoul of the trends. They don't want to end up sitting in a congressional hearing, like TikTok did a couple of weeks ago, and being told that they are so far outside of the political consensus in the United States that they basically can't be allowed to exist anymore, <laughs> um, which is kind of the message of that hearing. Yeah, and uh, he didn't
0: do himself any favors, though, did he? I mean, in the actual hearing itself. No,
1: but 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 that but that is exactly the lesson that these that these leaders are trying to learn, and and some of the tech companies, Facebook particularly, has been through some very bad hearings like that. And so the, what they're trying, what they're trying to do, if you think about it, is they're trying to say, okay, well, look, ultimately these, we are, we are creatures of these jurisdictions. These are the jurisdictions that can hurt us the most, or just these are the jurisdictions that we identify with. You know, Google is clearly an American company, no matter what it's, no matter how big its global trade is. So we're going to try to understand what the, what the culture demands of us. Mm. You know, Google made the decision A few years ago, that it basically, that the nature of the American political debate meant that it couldn't go into China. Because if it did, China would force it to comply with all sorts of rules that would create all sorts of political impacts back home. And they just, they just never got involved. Yeah. It wasn't that the US government told them not to. No. And I think that. And there are other companies, of course, who have felt like they just have to divest slowly but surely. Where
0: does, where does Europe sit in this? I mean, is, is the European polity, does it see itself like Google's fine, but you know TikTok isn't? Or actually, is, is Europe also saying, hang on a minute, we're just we, we we're sort of opening ourselves up to similar but hopefully more benign consequences of, of, of Google?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you see a similar debate in Europe. It's well. It's it's certainly not as let's say advanced vis-a-vis China, and it has a it has an extra wrinkle, which is that there's also the question of the United States, um, because you know there at the moment again in the tech field, which is different than commodities, but in the tech field the the U.S. is seen as a maybe a bigger problem than China. But I would predict that ultimately the decoupling will be more complete. When it comes to China, then when it comes to to uh, in Europe, then when it comes to the United States. With the United States, they have enough ideological compatibility and they have enough of a strategic alliance that they'll eventually come up with rules that they can live with about how to regulate things like technology companies and data privacy. It'll be incredibly painful, but it's been what's been happening for the last ten years. Mm. I think that when it when it comes to China. The ideological incompatibility and the strategic push from the United States will mean slow, gradual, but I think eventual decoupling. I mean, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, there was in Germany a decision to get Huawei out of their 5G network. Five years ago or so, when they first started considering this question, it was broadly the view in Germany that, that there wasn't a particular security risk to this that view has changed under us pressure and under chinese obnoxiousness in the last 5 years and now there's a very different perspective and i think that those types of pressures both the chinese behaving more uh, in a more obnoxious manner in a more geopolitically aggressive manner and with europe and the pressure from the united states to comply with what they see as a security issue and uh, and that they have reason to be able to talk to Europe about, because they're the security provider for Europe, means that there will be uh, slowly but surely a similar decoupling in Europe from China that you see in the United States. It will always lag behind. It will always be less complete. But I think the direction is the same. It's, It's fascinating,
0: isn't it? I mean, I just look at the commodity trading houses, many of whom have built vast, well, had built significant operations in China at least in sort of the last super cycle to, to capture that demand, some of those executives subsequently ended up in jail for you know various transgressions against whatever might have been deemed by the Chinese authorities, you know, and were often just political pawns in a, in various efforts. But, you know, it, it, this, this idea of this decoupled world and actually the, the sort of the paradigm that most commodity execs have grown up in, which is that they ever march forward to globalisation, international careers... And a more, an ever more efficient trade being down to this, you know, you've actually, you know, you've got to start thinking about which block you're in and how you're going to serve that block and what that limits you to is, is fascinating. Well, what is this? I guess the two questions therefore are, is this inevitable? Right. Or is there a, is, you know, I, I, we started this conversation talking about it being cyclical. What could put us back on the upswing towards globalization? And, and secondly, I guess, you know, not to ask a compound question, but I'm going to, what could, uh, I guess, accelerate a further trough if you consider it the negative in, in, in decoupling?
1: Well, I would say that, just to be clear, that I, I do sort of think of decoupling as a bad outcome in the sense that it, it reduces efficiency and therefore it will reduce wealth, probably in the end rather dramatically <laughs> relative to the alternative. Um, so it isn't good, but I guess I do think that in the context of the U.S.-China, increasing U.S.-China competition and the fragmentation of the global order, um, it is it is certainly inevitable. Well, let's put it this way. The trend will continue for quite some time. I also think that eventually the trend will reverse. I, I, I couldn't predict when, and it won't be soon. It probably won't even be in my lifetime, although I'm trying to keep healthy. But eventually, a couple of different things will happen. First, you know, assuming they don't blow up the world, the geopolitical tensions will lessen in part because the decoupling will reduce the areas of conflict and contestation that eventually over time, the, the U S and China and the others will find, will sort of understand the limits of their, of their spheres. will understand how they can hurt each other and, and figure out ways not to, and then they can start to yeah recouple, and one of the reasons that they'll do that is because there will be enormous opportunities that the decoupling will by creating inefficiencies create an enormous incentive to realize the efficiencies that can come from undoing them and that so therefore once there's even a sort of glimmer of geopolitical hope people will start to try to move in to take advantage of those uh, of those opportunities and so i think that eventually that will happen. But I, I don't think it will be soon. Uh, right now, the trend is very much toward decoupling. And there's obviously a lot of decoupling that still has to happen before these blocks start to feel comfortable with each other.
0: Is it, you know, I know China's a bit of a black, black box, at least the, 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 the Communist Party. It seems like in the US that you know, Biden didn't re- reverse any of Trump's trade policies, right? I mean, which was a bit of a sort of surprise. It's always ironic that the Democrats are now slightly more fee trade than the Republicans, given their sort of historical roots. Is there any wing in China that we can perceive that is sort of saying, hang on a minute, we've got loads of debt, you know, we've got other structural issues, population, all this kind of stuff, like... We don't want to become North Korea, Russia, China, and Iran gang. You know, Our popularity stems from having raised so many people out of poverty. Decoupling is not in our interest. Is there any sense of that being prevalent in the discussion, or is it kind of, you know, let's get Taiwan type stuff?
1: <laughs> you know, I honestly don't know. I, I would assume that there must be people in China who think that and probably even in the privacy of their boudoirs say it, but i think that by and large the chinese regime is you know in control and is um is is going to take the geopolitical steps that it has to take that it feels like it has to take and that the society will follow them uh, some segments perhaps reluctantly but i think somewhat quietly but to be fair to the Chinese regime, you know, their, their concept of decoupling is not like, you know, the Russian one where you shut off the gas one day. Um, it is, you know, I mean, it, it's a very long-term sort of dual, this dual circulation concept, which, you know, probably can't work, but at least has a, has a, um, a logic to it. Of a decoupling, which will maintain the Chinese economy and, and, and maintain even its links to the outside world. So it's a decoupling, which, which elevates Chinese control, reduces Chinese dependencies, but it's not intended to make Chinese into an isolated uh, autarky by any means. And so I think that, you know, I think that this, you can be a little bit too dichotomous when talking about decoupling. It's the trend. And it's, I think, it's going to continue to be the trend for a long time, and it's going to affect various industries increasingly. But again, there's going to be a lot of variability, and there's going to uh, both in speed and in effect in in different markets and different countries. And uh, I think that the Chinese and the Americans have fundamentally understood that, and they're both uh, taking on sort of long term policies to reduce their dependencies while maintaining as much as they can. The benefits of, uh, you know, uh, globalized or at least blockalized supply chains. Yeah. Blockitization and, and decoupling
0: like divorce <laughs> sounds uh, expensive, drawn out, painful,
1: uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think the whole <laughs> thing sort of... comes from, comes from that great geopolitical sage, Gwyneth Paltrow, who was the one who co- uh, coined this term conscious decoupling, um, which is, uh, I, somehow how she termed the end of one of her relationships and uh and that is essentially what's going on is a little bit of a paltrowian conscious decoupling well we've
0: coined some new terms in this it's been really fascinating yeah and i do think if you all sat looking you know a 10 year a five year plan a 10 year plan now at the board level is a lot harder to divine than it was 10 years ago right and will we start seeing the commodity trading world populate offices in 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 dc etc it's going to be it's going to be fascinating it's not as you say unfortunately the current trend is one of more uncertainty more volatile these also aren't linear processes right these are going to have shocks and bumps along the way and those are going to happen at the microcosm for companies and at the macro level and it's and it's going to be uh it's going to be, a, a, I think, a real sea change for, for the sector, That one that most of its execs haven't lived through before. Uh, yeah, I think that sums it up. Well, thanks so much for your time, Jeremy. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I hope we can have you on again in a, a year or so and, and see, where they, see what, if anything, and God forbid, any, any acute shocks have happened.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. Thank you for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.